It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Under the auspices of the four pillars of professional wrestling. And to join me today is Mr. Alex Watt. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Happy to be here for part two of this sort of mini series, I guess. <laughs> we did, we spoke about, um, last time I was on, we spoke about the Barber Memorial Show, which was really interesting. We kind of touched on some of this stuff that we're going to try and delve into a bit more in terms of like, yeah, maybe the biggest wrestling shakeup of the 21st century, do we think? I would say so, yes. It was essentially everything we've talked about in the history of pro wrestling in Japan up until now, from the previous 47 years, came undone. It yeah, was yeah, that basically. Mixture. It was like we talked about like I think I mean I think the it was actually like the I think it was the forty eighth anniversary of Inoki being fired no the fiftieth anniversary of Inoki being fired from the JWA, which was probably the biggest change, uh, the the first schism in pro wrestling, the first attempted coup, shall we say, in pro wrestling yesterday, mm. and in that in that giant barber Antonio Inoki attempted to break away from the JWA because they had no sense of direction in the company. And they had to fire Anoki because somebody had to be punished, but they couldn't afford to fire Baba because he was their biggest star, and both would be gone within a year. And that was probably the biggest news story in the 20th century. But in the 21st century, Noah being formed was an entire seismic shift in the way professional wrestling was presented. Mm. And it, it's, it's hard to contemplate the news that as it happened, because I got it piecemeal through Power Slam, and it didn't seem as big a story as it really, really was. Does that make sense? Because I think we're probably getting it on a month's delay. Yeah. Whereas now, because of the internet and, and news sites, if something like this happened now, say like, I don't know, Tomohiro Ishii started a new company and took half the New Japan roster with him, then yeah, it would, we'd find out straight away, and it'd be exciting. It's, it was much the same with Nakamura, and Guns and Gallows left uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. That was a massive story, and because yeah. it happened in real time, you felt it a lot more. Yeah, and that's I think what I was just, just going to mention. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I think it is the biggest story, really. I mean, and it starts with so many sad stories as well, and it starts with so many tragedies, really, that were kind of avoidable um, in many senses. We talked about Giant Baba kind of being quiet about his death because he didn't want to publicize it and worry his investors and worry the staff and, and worry everybody mm. by going for treatment and, you know, having a, a prolonged life, which he possibly could have done. And we're going to look at today the last show AJPW put out on Nippon Television um, because AJPW was owned by Nippon Television. They had a 10% stake in the company, which sounds insane to anyone outside of Japan, doesn't <laughs> it? 
Could you imagine Vince McMahon giving up 10% of his company to Fox News, Fox, Fox TV? Uh, no, because he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't even want to give up power to people with fucking Twitch channels, does he? So he's not going to do that. <laughs> Keith Lee needs retraining. What the hell are you on? Anyway, oh, yeah, let's <laughs> let's not, let's so, not yes. get on that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what happened was after the death of Babel, we talked about a little about this in the last episode. Well, the company was reformed with Matoko Baba as the president and Misawa as the vice president in charge of wrestling affairs. And Matoko Baba announced that she wanted to keep the company within the bounds of what her um, husband, Giant Baba, had agreed was the AJPW style, the King's Road style. Mm-hmm. And what it really meant was the closed-door policy to outsiders from AJPW. There is a booking style within AJPW that's very transferable, as we've talked about with FMW, BJW, and all these King's Road companies that came along after uh, this first schism. But really, um, this was the way you, who you booked rather than what you booked. And that was the big issue. Uh, Because King's Road is a zero-sum booking style. If you book it for long enough, the fans can tell you what will happen because it has to happen a certain way. It's video game wrestling. So therefore, they were running out of opponents for each other very, very quickly. And that's the issue with this. What's your thoughts on this, Alex, this, this closing sequence of, of the things coming to a head? Yeah, it's kind of crazy to look back on now and see how everything kind of unfolded with I guess, like, almost a backstage power struggle between Mizawa and Matoko Baba, because it's like, you kind of look back and go, because obviously this then leads to the exodus and and this complete kind of power shift and the end, you know, the the end of the peak of of all Japan, if you like. And it's kind of like, if they'd come together and kind of met in the middle in any way, we could be talking about Mm. some something completely different now, you know, 20, 20 years later, maybe this doesn't happen, you know, um, because she was so focused on keeping things as they were in terms of, yeah, Giant Baba's legacy and, yeah, the the isolationist policy would, would stay the same, um, which, as you say, means it's tough to keep the product fresh if you, you know... <laughs> The, the top guys have essentially beaten everyone and there's not necessarily new talent for them to work with. You know, I think we spoke a little bit on the last show how Mazawa his thing was he wanted to modernise the product, he wanted to push some of the younger talent, which he obviously then went on to do and know her to a certain extent. But she, Matoko, disagreed because she felt like Japanese wrestling had fallen from its peak, so she didn't want to stray too far from this King's Road booking philosophy because that had worked so well for them in the past but this was a new era now this is like 99 2000 and here's one to throw back at you that i was wondering about while i was kind of watching the show how much of an impact did you know external wrestling like north american wrestling have at this time in japan because obviously like the attitude era was the big thing like was there an influence there on Japanese wrestling fans where maybe they wanted to see something 
a bit fresher, a bit, you know, a bit, a bigger presentation maybe than all Japan historically would be comfortable with producing? I don't know so much as that different kind of product because that different kind of product was already there. Mm. And at that point, FMW, as me and John Dinsdale looked at the 1999 uh, FMW 10th anniversary show, and they had been going from 34,000, 36,000, 40,000 at Tokyo Baseball Stadium to getting not quite filling 12,000 at Yokohama Arena. Mm -hmm. And they changed their style to D, the Attitude Era. You look at their 10th anniversary, it's got... uh, their tag team champions going up against Tommy Dreamer and Raven. You know, right. Wink, Wink Kanamura wrestles Balls Mahoney, and the referee in the main event is Shawn Michaels. It doesn't get much more <laughs> attitude era than that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Have a, How could I forget Shawn Michaels in his uh, very tight referee outfit again? Yes, that's it. And it, it's the. So there's that product there, and there's working agreements between Vince McMahon and FMW. And Paul Heyman and FMW, DCW and WWE are, are supporting FMW because they're they're struggling draw wise. So mm. that product's there. Uh, WWE's kind of withdrawing its support from Wrestling and Romance, Tenru's company, to go and support FMW instead. Mm. And the, they had a period of heavy F- WWE uh, involvement, including a six man tag team championships at one point, which I think was the most ridiculous team I ever heard of, which was Warlord Bob Backlund and Tatonka. Um, wow. So, <laughs> see that, like, the option was there for the WWE product or a WCW product, and WCW was already really present in Japan because the NWO, yeah. it was 21 years since Tenko Z won the World Tag- G1 World Tag League as a members of the NWO. It was uh, repeat. It was pictures on the NGPW1972.com, resplendent in their matching mullets um, <laughs> this week. This week uh, to coincide with that, so the WCW product was was pretty big, but New Japan yeah. were filling the Tokyo Dome, and it it's this is the thing I think as well with it's about concept and procedure. Like all Japan always made their money on. Drawing at the house show, big money. Budokan Hall, $100 a ticket every time. New Japan were much more culturally aware. They would put 40000 in the Tokyo Dome, tell you it was 60000 and it looks like a big deal. Yeah. Now, 10000 well, 16000 in Budokan is a big deal. But that pop culture kind of reference was New Japan's thing. All Japan thing was for the connoisseur but it was still big money wrestling. And all Japan made more money than New Japan did in the 1990s just by having higher ticket prices well, <laughs> yeah. than anything else. <laughs> uh, but they also had the talent. And it like New Japan had some ropey main events here and there, and all Japan didn't. They, they got the formula right. So yeah. it's understandable why Matoka Baba didn't want to go away from what brought them to the dance. That makes sense in one sense. But equally, Masawa understands that a wrestling promotion has to grow. And I think what Matoka Baba didn't understand was it took 25 years for Baba to come up with this formula to perfection. Yeah. You know, 
you think about starting in 74 and making up cards with Gaijins and regulars from the JWA and that dreadful early 80s period where they didn't really have great quality, but they had big stars. As me and John Dinsdale looked at the big matches from the 70s and 80s in all Japan, you know, when Harley came, it was great. When Harley wasn't there, it wasn't that great. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it took a while to figure out what all Japan needed to be. So, and Masao understood that, you know, he joins at a lean time when in 88, he becomes a pro in 87, I think. Mm-hmm. His first major, his first major feud is with the Dynamite Kid, who's been there, done that, seen it all. And he learns from those older veterans and he understands it's not just about the making money from day to day for the next weekend. It's about having a long-term vision and a philosophy for the company because that's what Baba taught him as well. Yeah, and I think and that's... that's that... Carol. Sorry, you finish. <laughs> no, that's, what, that's where he's coming from, I think. Yeah, because I was going to say that it's interesting like when you mentioned like, the four pillars and stuff like that. It, you know, these weren't, you know, old veterans when they started breaking their way through and into that kind of 90s boom period. Like, and maybe that's something that was lost along the way when we're talking about what Matogo Baba was kind of relying on was like the top guys would be at the top kind of thing and we're not going to push the young talent. Whereas Mazawa's very like, no, we need to bring these new guys through. He also wanted to like, bring focus to like a junior heavyweight division as well right which mm-hmm. um you know she also wasn't keen on and then that went on to have quite a lot of success in noah so you can see like the things he wanted to implement and you then see how they then came into being in noah and like it's interesting as well like other stuff like i think mazawa had actually been removed from his presidential position like a month before this split um due to various disagreements over contracts um again like he wanted to to modernize the contracts he wanted to give the workers full medical coverage injury pay which seems like fairly standard like it's mad that they didn't have that when you <laughs> consider the risks like the risks those guys were taking how brutal particularly the main event matches all these classics like with those four guys and beyond you know Akiyama and and all those guys involved as well like they were absolutely brutal like and obviously then had an effect on Mizawa Kobashi etc as they as they aged um so yeah it's crazy that they didn't have that in place and that that caused that kind of friction behind the scenes really and then the even crazier part is because of that, and a lot of the talent hadn't signed new contracts, right, around this time. So the old yeah. Japan talent were mainly working as free agents because Mazawa hadn't been authorized to give them raises that he wanted to. He They couldn't settle on these contract um, negotiations. And it's that's mad. Like, <laughs> that's mad. That, that's basically <laughs> what then leads to this because what all these guys who have you know the guys who've helped build the company all japan and then the new younger guys who are up and coming none of them are on proper contracts uh, you know it's yeah. crazy mismanagement behind the scenes when you to create a scenario where 24 of your wrestlers have the freedom to just walk away and start your own, start their own company it's 
it's mad really looking back on it you couldn't could you imagine that happening in, in any other industry like not to tie down 24 like employees well that, <laughs> well, that was standard industry practice at yeah. the time you were to bear in mind that wrestlers were going off on their excursions and expected to find their own bookings now yeah. new yeah new japan now will send i don't know let's say um uh, Gabriel Kidd, when he's finished his run in, in, in the dojo, they'll send him back to the UK. He'll do six months of Rev Pro, he'll do six months of Ring of Honor, he'll have a new gimmick, and he'll turn up in New Japan. Yeah. And they will pay him. He will be on twice as much, well, four times as much pay as the guys in Rev Pro, and three times as much pay as the guys in Ring of Honor. He'll have a great time, he'll be looked after, and he'll go home, and he'll save some money because that's the foundation to build your career on. And yeah. every year he performs better, he'll get paid better. Whereas back in the 80s and back in the 90s, they said, we want you to go to England. You ring up Brian Dixon, you get your booking sheet, you go. And Brian pays you. And that's it. That's the deal. If Brian yeah. doesn't find work for you, you don't work. And you're not under contract to the company you left. <laughs> Which is insane. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely insane. So like this, this, um, this. If you look at the book, the wrestling, um, which looks at the British wrestling industry in the late nineteen nineties, um, I think it's Yuji Nagata or Kojima have come over to England for six months to do to do their excursions. It'd be Nagata at that point. Nagata comes over, does his excursions, and he's jobbing to um, the Power Ranger in the opening match, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this is this is. Bringing you to Nagata. Yeah. But that's the way the business worked. And, you know, someone like Tajiri, who's the, the best example, went off from the IWA, I think it was IWA or FMW, where he trained to go do his excursion in Mexico and never left. Mm. He never went back to Japan until 10 years later. And he worked for CMLL, ECW, WWE, because by the time he got back to Japan, the company didn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. So this was standard practice in Japan. Everything was done on handshake deals. As Mick Foley once said when he wrestled for the IWA, he was when he was signed with the WWE, he actually had a signed contract to return to the IWA the following year. Mm -hmm. But he broke the deal to go to the WWE. But if he'd shook hands, he would have told Vince, no, I'm sorry, I can't go. I have a handshake deal with the IWA. And Vince would probably have understood. Yeah. Or it's paid off the IWA to keep him, which is just insane. Yeah. Because just that's how business is done. <laughs> yeah. And it's like so it was a mash it was a mash of reality coming up against, you know, pro wrestling business practice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it, the thing. It's just it's just wild to look at it. Yeah. People outside of wrestling would look at that and just be like, that's that's bonkers. Like that's absolutely bonkers. <laughs> Because they've, you know, that sets up that they can just do this. They can just be like, see ya, we're, we're not happy. We're going to go and start our own company now. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And essentially what happens with BJW a couple of years before, and that was another All Japan schism, but it wasn't as well documented. Now, BJW is as big a company as Noah is. But yeah. back in the late 90s, they were this backyard promotion doing violent stuff that AJPW had no interest in and because they were small and easily forgettable 
they they didn't really have the influence that they did that they do now. But BJW put big shows on now. They can fill a sumo hall by themselves. They don't need AJPW. <laughs> they're bigger than AJPW and nearly as big as Noah. In fact, their wrestlers wrestle on AJPW cards as guests all the time. So it's it's interesting to see how all these things have developed down the years and mm, what's definitely. gone on. Who was the biggest story at the biggest biggest story at the time? But certainly, I think the Noah schism was the biggest of all the big issues mm. in pro wrestling in the early 2000s and was showed you where the business was because the wrestlers understood they've reached a point of no return. They couldn't just keep going. This was, this was it. Something had to be done. And in the midst of all that, we have the show to look at, which is the very final show on Nippon TV that AJPW produced. And it goes back to the January of 1999 to look at the AJPW World Tag Team Tournament, which was a tribute to Jumbo Saruta. Jumbo Saruta had retired in 1999, um, in February of 1999, a month after the passing of Giant Baba, and had decided he was going to go to the United States and be a researcher at the University of Portland because... Of course, Jumbo Saruta has two degrees and is, is a, a, a top-notch academic as well as being an Olympic standard pro wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately um, for him, he had been diagnosed with hepatitis B, which developed uh, into liver cancer and cirrhosis of the liver. And because of the odd rules about uh, organ transplants, transplants in Japan, he couldn't find a donor. And he finally found a donor in the Philippines and, unfortunately for him, died on the operating table whilst trying to receive a liver transplant. So this show was a tribute to Jumbo Saruta um, and for the vacant World Tag Team titles, which, of course, Saruta had been such a big part in making them the most mm. respected tag team titles in pro wrestling. And... It was another sign of a change of the times. Now, Jumbo hadn't been an active player in the main event for a good six years. He'd been doing the young boy matches and looking after people and getting people over and doing some comedy stuff the way Giant Baba had. But he was still a totem. He was still... You can see in this video the respect that Misawa had for him, that mm -hmm. Kobashi had for him, that the Four Pillars had for him, and everyone on the All Japan roster had for him. And it must have been so hard for them to say goodbye to their friend, their mentor, the guy who did all of that. The guy that wrestled David Von Erich in, in uh, the guy that wrestled Kerry Von Erich in Budokan Hall, the guy that headlined against Stan Hansen, had the big feud with Terry Gordy, all those things that Saruta did, wrestled Ric Flair how many times, for how long, and how many mm -hmm. hour limit draws. Yeah. He is... You know, he's he's pro wrestling. He's as much pro wrestling as Ricky Dozan, Tatsumi Fujinami, Giant Babaro, um, uh, Antonio Inoki. And again, there's another totem of AJPW, the guy that literally carried the company throughout the early 80s when nobody wanted to watch AJPW because it was dreadful. <laughs> you know, so there's another totem that goes, but what was on that show was the tournament for the tag team titles. So we shall start with the tournament for the tag team titles. Akira Teu and Toshiaki Kawada, the Holy Demon <laughs> Army, 
defeated Johnny Ace and Mike Barton in 14 minutes and 35 seconds. You may know Mike Barton under another name, which would be Bart Gunn, because, you know, he'd done his run with the WWE where he got knocked out by Butterbean at WrestleMania in like 15 seconds flat, and that was the end of that after receiving a yeah. massive push for winning Brawl for All. Um, and he ended up in all Japan for wrestling. For winning. Punished for winning a boxing tournament he wasn't supposed to win there. Yeah, because Steve Williams was supposed to win that. (laughs) (laughs) He was was also on on the tour. Steve Williams was actually back in AJPW before the end of this year because essentially Steve had left All Japan in 98 to go to WWE for this monster feud with Steve Austin's that never happened because Mm -hmm. of Mike Barton. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then gone back to and then gone back to all Japan Pro Wrestling, and um, was on the tail end of his run in the company, and on the final night of uh, all Japan Pro Wrestling, came to the ring to challenge to say to Misawa, "I'm going to miss you, and we should just wrestle one more time before we can, whilst we can." And they never would, which is sad. But there mm. you go. Um, yeah, and so anyway, Teyu and Kawada versus Johnny Ace and Mike Barton. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, just to talk about the show generally very quickly, because it was, I've, I'd not seen this before. It was, it was really fascinating to watch, like, the final, <laughs> the final time All Japan were, were actually on TV, like, because obviously they, these huge ramifications with Noah being set up, the, the deal with Nippon TV basically stopped broadcasting All Japan shows out after what like 27 years and they'd start broadcasting in Noah instead um and yeah I was I was saying to you before we recorded like it's it's interesting because they only um they only televise it the the top four matches here and actually looking at mm. the the whole card it's it's it looks like quite an interesting card overall like it's a it's a bit of a shame because like um, like we did with the the Barber Memorial show, you're seeing like a card full of all these young guys who we know are going to go on to like massive things. There's like Kanemaru versus Kenta is on there. Um, Stan Hansen is against Takeshi Morishima, who we spoke about quite a bit on on that um, last show. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's so it was, it was a shame that we didn't get to see some of those, to be honest. Um, but yeah, essentially, it's a a show great tag matches and as you said on Twitter earlier, a lot of footage of massive lads looking very old whilst wearing suits. Um, <laughs> that's that's like the whole hour basically. Um but yeah Teo and Kawada is a first of all <laughs> hell of a team. Um and yeah it's this first match is is a cracker I thought it's Fast-paced, back and forth, loads of false finishes. And it was interesting watching it because will any of these tag matches from, like, the, the 90s and 2000 in, in All Japan? Because I was thinking watching it, like, we listened to, like, some of the old-school US guys who talk about tag wrestling. So, you know, like, the likes of Jim Cornette, Jim Ross, etc. like, who like yeah. to... They like to make you believe that tag team wrestling should be done a certain way, that the tagging is super important, that there's a a certain style of tag wrestling that should be adhered to. 
And obviously Cornette will admonish the young bucks on a weekly basis, for instance. <laughs> All these modern teams for kind of the frequent in and outs and the double teams, fast pace, lots of kickouts. But watch this match. They're doing all those things. Like they're, you know, the closing stretch, they're frequently running in and out for saves. There's all these double teams. They're working at a frantic pace. And this is all Japan in 2000. You know, it's not 2020. And this is the tag match in the tag, the tag team work, sorry, in all Japan is rightly revered as some of the best tag team stuff that's that's ever happened in the history of wrestling and all those elements of tag wrestling that old schoolers will sometimes mock nowadays are pretty much all on display in this match which i thought was <laughs> was really interesting um so it just goes to show that like there are influences everywhere. and i think when these kind of old school commentators who you know come through like mid in NWA and things like that. It's like, yes, that's one way of tag team wrestling, but actually, man, they were clearly doing quite a lot more that has influenced a lot of these modern teams. Yeah, I thought I thought it was really fascinating watching this one. And the fact that obviously Johnny Aceum basically were <laughs> one of the teams, which is quite funny given their connection to to WWF and WWE. Um but yeah, the, the match itself, like I say, I thought it was really good. Like, Teo and Kawada, obviously, are fantastic. We know that. They're, they're two of the four pillars. Um, lots of false finishes. Um, like, Barton and Ace cracking out the Doomsday device was really entertaining, obviously. Shout out to, to, the, to the Road Warriors there. Um, and yeah, the, yeah good. it kind of set... You okay, Alex? I was just going to say, sorry, you just got kind of stopped in mid-stride then. I was going to say, if you go back to listen to our Road Warriors tribute, May and John Dinsdale uh, re- reviewed a match where the Road Warriors tagged with Johnny Ace in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Yes. I think, actually, I think we... Was that on the Barber Memorial show? I can't remember now. Yes, it may well have been. It was yeah. definitely me and John that did it. Or was it, was it me and you that did it? I thought, I thought, because I, we looked at the, the, they did a couple of matches together, I think. So yeah. it may have been me and John did it as well. But yeah. But yeah, I, see, I seem to remember that. Might, yeah, we might have spoken about that on the last show. But yeah, that was that was a nice little shout out for, for obvious reasons. And, and yeah, the, the other interesting part was kind of the, it, it starts to set up this kind of talk, this, story that's going to play into the final that Tay kind of gets, picks up this shoulder injury supposedly and he's getting he's there for a long time getting it taped up on the outside and that you know Johnny Ace and um Barton are basically preventing him from getting back in the ring over and over again they're isolating <laughs> Kawada um and then obviously eventually Kawada gets free gets the hot tag and it, it leads to the finish um but yeah, the, the crowd were, were very into this one. Like, you know, Johnny Ace counting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but like when he when he hits the ace cutter at one point, like he counters a Kawada attack into the ace cutter, they they fully buy that that is going to be the finish. And there's a bunch of times where that happens. Like like in the end, like I think Kawada ends up like hitting an ace cutter of his own. He 
he kicks him, he hits power bombs, he finally hits like a lariat and a big kick to get the win. Um, and it was because this one's probably the predictable result of the two, right? Given that yeah. it's Teo Te- yeah. and Kawada, you know, so they're, they're kind of they're the favourites to win, but they they really keep people guessing throughout. It's it's really well worked, I think. Probably. Of the three matches, the the tournament matches, it's probably the most entertaining just because it is so it's so high paced and there's there's so many false finishes. Even though the final probably tells the better story, this yeah. I thought this was really entertaining. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is the thing. Like, of course, the Holy Demon Army, which like the Holy Roman Empire, they weren't holy. They were demons, and they weren't an army. But by gum, they could wrestle. Um, <laughs> oh, Japanese <laughs> tag names, always the best. Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. It does sound like right, lads. Think up a name, and they're like, uh, "Holy Demon Army, great." And that's it. Uh, <laughs> it's it does like sound. A, it does. They've, put, they've got like a whiteboard out and just put lots of different <laughs> words. Like, just let's mix and match what goes together the best. It's essentially what, like, how Public Enemy wrote songs in the nineties, um, yeah. <laughs> and how Giant Baba came up with tag team names. Anyway, um, yeah, this this is really good. There's all the bits as well, like Johnny Ace and Mark Bar- Mike Barton popping out some smoking guns double teams as well, which was yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, Teo and Kawada were just in. Teo's hook kicks were just mental. He either had them really well timed, or he just genuinely kicked them in the mouth. Because it was just perfect. <laughs> it's, it's hard to know with classical no, it, which of the two, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, either he's just knocked some teeth out, or he's he's just landed it perfectly on his chin and not not touched him. Um, with, but yeah, it was Teo and Kawada. It's probably a combination of both, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it is just that good, and it's forty minutes thirty-five seconds. It is just breathtaking. It moves at such a high speed for four big guys. Mm-hmm. Mike Barton's you, Mike Barton is deceptively big because when you see him in WWE in the late nineties as part of the Smoking Guns, he's up against guys like Men on a Mission and um, people like that who are bigger, much bigger than he is, and he looks kind of normal size. And then you watch him in this, and Johnny Ace is a big lad, and he yeah. towers over. He's the same height as Johnny Ace. And he towers over Kawada, well, not Teu, but he certainly towers over Kawada. And it's like, you forget, like, he was a big guy. He was a small guy by WWE standards at the time, but 245 wasn't big in WWE, whereas here it's massive. Yeah. And, it, and he, feels, he feels like a much more impressive wrestler. He still doesn't sell enough, and he's got a personality of cardboard. However... <laughs> It makes up. It doesn't matter so much here because Johnny Ace understands how to cut a promo to a Japanese audience and understands how that works. And he has got some vim and vigor. And the bit that amazes me about the Cornette stuff is Cornette's made documentaries about all Japan pro wrestling and how much he loves it. Yeah, I know. And and it's like, but also the, the couple of weeks ago on his show, he kind of like said he was never really that impressed with AJW and didn't think it was as good as the men's promotions at the time, which is just wrong. So there you go. Mm. I mean, it's his personal taste, and that's fine, but his argument was basically in WWE, Sasha and Bailey and Charlotte and Carmella shouldn't be 
working harder than the guys to get over because then the guys will have to work hard and the women can take it and the guys can't so therefore the guys will get injured right <laughs> so it's a, so it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a take isn't it it's certainly a take yeah um don't don't work hard don't work hard to get over is one of the stranger cornet takes i've got got to say like in the the wrestling business his basic principle is that i can understand where he's coming from when you go his mindset which is that men are more likely to make you money to protect the guys and if women have great matches, then the guys have to try as hard as the women do. And men can't be as good as wrestlers as women because they're not as flexible and they can't do as many things and they can't take as many bumps. So you're going to have damaged the guys. But it hasn't seemed to occur to him that you could, despite the fact women headlined WrestleMania two years ago and were co-headlines this year, that women could draw as much as guys do. Yeah. But anyway. Well, also the fact that, you know, Maybe you know the wrestling audience has changed since <laughs> since you know he was working <laughs> in WWE. That maybe you know it, it it is important that women's wrestling has a real focus at the top of the card. Um, but yeah. anyway, <laughs> moving on. So the second match in the tournament was Takoko Omori and Yoshihiro Takayama versus Mitsuru Masawa and Yoshinari Ogawa. And this was also brutal. Absolutely yes. <laughs> brutal. Takoka Amore is still wrestling as part of AJPW. He's gone back in subsequent years as he got older and he wasn't really as effective in Noah as he, as he thought he could be. He went back to all Japan pro wrestling. I think he had some time in Wrestle 1 with Mutra as well. And Yoshiro Takayama is a gloriously mad bastard. <laughs> and I absolutely love him very, very much. And I'm very, very thankful that he is these days able to lift weights again after yeah. being paralyzed in an accident a couple of years ago. Um, he is fit enough to lift weights and is working out, which is really, really nice to see because it's something he wanted to do. And But at this point in his career, he's at an interesting crossroads because he's left UWFI. He's about two years into his uh, his all Japan career, Giant Baba picked him up and placed him with, um, oh, can't remember his name. Picture him, I can see him in my mind. Wrestled for Nebraska State and uh, him, who wrestled for UWFI. They came in as a tag team together um, in all Japan pro wrestling from UWFI. Um, and he kind of ended up on his own and then formed this tag team with uh, Amori. And it's a nice mix of pure pro wrestler versus pure shooter. Takeyama, by this point, already had a stroke. He is one of the toughest human beings ever, and it shows in this match. And Masawa and Agawa, Masawa's not working with his regular partner, Kobashi. He's working with this young guy he's trying to bring along. And it was a predictable story of dominance over the young guy, but... Takayama and Amori look so good doing what they're doing, and Masawa is so good at getting them over as a credible threat to this championship. Yeah, hundred um, percent. What's your What's your thoughts on this, Alex? So, yeah, it was it was stiff this one, wasn't it? Um, yes. it's, it's always <laughs> very stiff. Like it's first of all, it's always wild to me watching back on these shows and seeing Takayama without 
the bleach blonde hair that obviously you kind of yeah. associate him with now, but there's definitely no mistake in it's him. Like it is, he is, yeah, it is him and Amori as a team are stiff. Like it is, it definitely like it felt a little bit more ramshackle at times than the first semi final. It felt like, you know, it's slightly Amori and Takeyama were like slightly unpredictable in their style whereas obviously like Mizawa and Ogawa are very very smooth wrestlers and it made for like quite an interesting fun clash of styles I thought and Amori and Takayama absolutely battered them (laughs) along the way like there was a lot of (laughs) clubbing shots big boots lariats I think Mizawa gets kicked in the face I don't know Double figures, probably. <laughs> he gets kicked in the head a lot um, along the way. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of nice double team work. And you can see, like, Amori and Takayama work really nicely together as a team. But also, like, Mizawa and Ogawa, uh, you know, they did, like, Mizawa did a drive in, a dive and drop kick into, like, an Ogawa German suplex at one point, which was really nice. So, again, like, lots of really great double team work along the way and it kind of builds to a bit of like a shock finish as well which is really nicely done because it looks like just as the momentum's kind of turned into um Ogawa's favor while Mizawa's you know occupied on the outside with Takayama Takayama kind of briefly gets free smashes him in the back of the head and then Ogawa, uh, sorry, Amori hits the lariat and gets the big win basically and it's very it's very quick the way they do it. It's 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 quite well done I thought. Yeah, it, and it goes against the grain of AJPW being yes. the big build to the finish. We're saving that for something else. There's something going to come that you're really going to like. Yeah, so it kind exactly. Of, it, it kind of shortcuts the emotion so people don't get worn out. You've already had one loads of false finishes, high spot matches, so you don't want the same again. So we give them something slightly different. It's got a slightly different approach, but it's still got a definitive finish so we can have a tournament final that means something. And I think that's really important as well. Everything you see, you're right, Ramshackle is the best way to describe Takayama and Amori. They aren't like, they aren't the Rock and Roll Express, are they? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But everything rolls and everything fits and it fits their offensive style and Takayama like that it's just the early days of the avalanche uh German and you can see where it's going to develop into because by, by the time Takayama was at his height about three years later in New Japan wrestling I've seen a G1 tournament with him in and you think he's going to drill people through the ring with that German mm-hmm. and he's just is you can see he's working out how to be a main event wrestler as he goes, and that's yeah. refreshing to see, you know. And and Amori is in. Uh, Amori would have been how old would Amori have been at the time? He's fifty-one now, so he was talking thirty-one. He was a seasoned vet. He knew what he was doing. He knew how to get the best out of a match, and he's just just the right person for this. Mm. The right person to be put in the right place. And this match is corking. I really yeah. enjoy it for what it is. It's, yeah, it's, definitely. It's not, it's not your classic AJPW tag match, but it didn't want to be. It wanted to be something else. 
Which is interesting because I wonder is that Mazawa's influence, do you think? Like realizing that the, the story was more about the final and they could do a little bit, they could work a little bit different and have the shock finish in this one. Yeah, I think so. Which, yeah, I think. So I was going to say, which is obviously interesting in the context of everything we're, we're talking about and kind of that backstage struggle over how he wanted to develop the product in a certain way and, and you know, Matoko didn't necessarily agree with that. It's interesting that this match is, is on the card in that sense. Yeah, that's, that's it. It's, it's really interesting. And then as a break from the wrestling, the show actually moves on to the memorial service for Jumbo Saruta and the guests that attend, um, including high-ranking New Japan officials and wrestlers, Atsushi Anita, who was signed to New Japan at the time, he came to pay his respects to his dojo friend, his dojo brother, Jumbo Saruta. He was one of the three uh, wrestlers that Giant Baba took personally under his wing, Jumbo Saruta, Jinichiro Tenyu, and Atsushi Anita. He was there. Uh, Tatsumi Fujinami, a lot of the New Japan front office staff who obviously may have worked for Baba or had influence from Baba or at least talked to Baba on a regular basis. And then the schism press conference takes place where... Misawa announces the birth of a new wrestling promotion. They don't know what it's going to be at the time, but they know that they're all leaving. And the only person left to defend HAPW is Kawada, who was mm. the only one who's staying. Um, yeah. You know, um, there was, I'm trying to remember the, who, the, who was staying. There was him and uh, Masanubi Fuchi. You know, Fuchi was the ace of the junior heavyweight division for the most of the 90s because there wasn't anyone else to be honest mm. with you he was he was um fuji came along at the same time as onita and onita um went off into he, he did his apprenticeship in the 70s good lord fuji has been wrestling as long as i've been alive and he's still wrestling now um, wow <laughs> <laughs> wow <is> this... <laughs> But Fuji came along at the same time as Anita. He was probably going to be a mid-card guy. Then Anita retired in 84, and he became the man. And he was kind of obsessed with the Dynamite Kid. And Dynamite Kid took him under his wing, and he was another one of those uh, endless supply of Dynamite copycats in the 1990s. But he was a bit more original than the rest, and he stood the test of time. And he was the kind of guy Mr. Kawada needed to write the ship. And he's still to this day, even though he's not contracted to AJPW, he does occasional shots for them. And he's there in an advisory capacity because he's literally seen everything in pro wrestling in the last 50 years. You know, mm. so he was the kind of guy he needed. But Kawada and Fuji have, they're it. They, they are the board. They are the wrestlers. They are it. But Toko Baba is suddenly left without anyone on her books, apart from Stan Hansen and Maniki Masman, who will appear later on this card, and we know now is Teo Kea. Um, but that's it, four wrestlers, and that's all she's got. And she's got no TV deal, because the TV company that owns her company is pulling out, and she's left in the land of nowhere for at least a month, but mm -hmm. today we're talking about Noah. We'll talk a little more about All Japan after we've talked about Noah because the recovery for All Japan is amazing. And they're back to filling Budokan Hall within a year, which you wouldn't have thought possible from this kind of no, uh, position. Not at all. <laughs>
but this this um this move by Ken- by the wrestlers is incredible because it takes all of that young talent that Baba had been fostering in Marafuji, in Kenta, in Morishima, and all of Kanemura. Mm-hmm. They're gone. The future of the company is literally no longer there. What's your thoughts on this press conference? Because it is the most awkward press conference in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Like, it's not... It's funny because I feel like if you saw that in American wrestling, can you imagine how much more different the vibe would be? Like, they feel kind of awkward and embarrassed. You know, they're not kind of shouting about how, you know, they're going to go and do this big thing. It's very like, sorry, it's come to this kind of thing. (laughs) Which kind of sums up the, it basically sums up the complete difference in the cultures around wrestling in both countries, I suppose. Um, But yeah, I mean, generally, like like you say, we can't overstate the significance of it because for, what, 24 All Japan native wrestlers to say they're going to jump ship, they're going to form their own promotion. As you say, for all the young talent that had been coming through, that's basically the future, it seems, of all Japan gone. Like, all the young guys that were coming through, who, as we know, go on to big things, like particularly Mara Fuji and Kenta being the obvious two. And then Mm. you've then got three or four pillars gone like they've also left like you said the only one who sticks around is Kawada but Mizawa Kobashi Teu all make this jump you've got Akiyama as well who's let's be honest basically the fifth pillar um, and he's got yeah. gone as well They're, they've all gone to form this new company that's you like I say can't overstate what a shake up that is of the industry and yeah at the time for it looks like that's all Japan done. The fact that they can even like, like recover in any way from this is, is you know, really impressive because from Noah's point of view, if we want to kind of delve into that a tiny bit at this point. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. I guess it's kind of stuff we've kind of touched on already, but Noah essentially harnessed that talent and kind of continued the old Japan developmental system they just took it to a whole new company, you know, and they, they took the young guys and they continued to develop them. And then, um, as I kind of touched on, Mizawa then brought more focus on a junior heavyweight division, which all Japan was less keen on, um, which went from strength to strength and was a real big part of Noah. Um, and yeah, Marafuji and Kenta became kind of the cornerstones of that division before moving up to heavyweight on the back of that. Um, and yeah, the, this more open attitude towards wrestlers from outside promotions coming in and working for the company. You know, we've spoken about the isolationist policy, but this was a great example in how you can allow your homegrown stars to shine and be the top guys, but also expand and get new eyes on on the product which all japan just didn't do you know new japan had done it with wcw and seen real success um with kind of getting new eyes on their top wrestlers um and yeah it's in from my point of view it's interesting because that kind of expansion into you know 
sending talent to North America kind of is what got me into Japanese wrestling. And it might be the yeah. same for mm. it, it, people of kind of my era, <laughs> my era, if that makes sense. But like who grew up, yeah. I guess, watching wrestling when I did. I, you know, that kind of classic period of all Japan um, and all Japan women as well, that was like just slightly, I was slightly too young for that, you know. So I've gone yeah. back on the back of, of Noah and things like that to, to kind of discover that. So the Noah guys going and working with Ring of Honor was a big thing in, in my eyes on Japanese wrestling. And obviously there was then, which I'm sure we'll do a podcast on this because I'm going to insist on it, but Kobashi's famous GHC title reign was so talked about, so revered in like everywhere. Like <laughs> it's basically bigged up. It was bigged up as the ta- at the time as maybe the greatest title reign that had ever happened in wrestling that was the other thing of like well i've probably got to go and see check check out some of these matches and see if they're as good as as is being said but definitely like the likes of kenta marafuji and then morishima later on and obviously kobashi and the match with joe and things like that they all really um got new eyes on on noah and on Japanese wrestling as a whole. So yeah, from my point of view, it really started my love affair with Japanese wrestling. I think there'll be a lot of people who, who had a, a sim, it had a similar effect on, um, which shows how more, much more effective that expansion and, and kind of developing away from the isolationist policy. You know, it did, it did have benefits because certainly from my point of view, it did get my eyes on the product. The fact that they were just kind of talent trades. Oh, yeah, and it works the other way as well. I mean, you look at SEM, which was a developmental system that Noah developed, and it basically came from Misawa going to wrestle for WXW in Germany. Mm. Germany's biggest promotion at the time. They wrestled in small theaters, and they wrestled in nightclubs, and Misawa loved the feeling of 200 people crammed into a nightclub to watch a wrestling match. So that's why he started Mm -hmm. SEM, because he understood the depth of how you learn about controlling a crowd and how you learn about how small crowds are important and that atmosphere and feeling it was essentially acoustic sets for pro wrestling however (laughs) (laughs) he did it to and that's but that's the thing if it stayed in agpw he would never wrestled in germany yeah so that that you know if they'd done if they'd said what they do you don't have kenta so you don't have kenta in bullet club today Mm-hmm. and the possibility of John Moxley versus Kenta for the IWGP US Heavyweight Championship. Yeah. You don't have Naomuchi Marafuji's run as the ace of Noah and Lee Creative Booker of Noah, which gave us all these things that we know and love. You don't have uh, her... Um, hmm, pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, Morishima's run with the Ring of Honor World Championship. There's all sorts yeah. of things just don't happen. In, yeah. in not just in Japanese wrestling, but in wrestling, wrestling, you know, all of wrestling. You don't get Go Shiyazaki going to Liverpool to wrestle in the British uh, wrestling tournament in 2009. Uh, yeah. That, that, yeah, that got organized by the F, um, FWA. It's all sorts of things that just don't happen because... AJPW would quite happily have caught doing Budokan Hall until they only got 6,000 in there, and that's not the way it needed to be. They needed to change. They needed to move on. And we should probably talk about that a little bit before we go back to the card. 
because Matoka Baba's booked into a corner. She can't go anywhere else. Mm. And the one thing she said she would never do because Shohei Baba said he would never do it and was very vocal about how he would never do it was bring back some of the lost sheep who had left all Japan pro wrestling. And the yes. first thing she does is book Jinichiro Tenru <laughs> <laughs> for a yeah. run with the Triple Crown, a title he couldn't attain very often when he worked for the company. And she lays out the red carpet for Tenru to the point where he essentially closes down war at WAR because he ends up with that many dates for other promotions. As a freelancer, he doesn't have time to run his own promotion anymore. Um, and that's insane that Tenru came back and he had, she had to do something to reward the faithful for the fans that stayed with All Japan, for the fans that didn't want to go to Noah, that wanted their wrestling in the All Japan manner. She had mm. to do something. And the, literally the only thing left for her to do was to do the unthinkable. And the fact that she wouldn't move slightly for Misawa meant she had to move heaven and earth yeah, for Tenru. It's so funny, like the way that that works out really like it, it kind of forces her hand to to do like you say something that was that's so kind of and even it's an even bolder move than anything Mazawa was probably suggesting before because this was I, I, so like yeah i think it's as close to sacrilege as you will find in professional wrestling yeah it's it's so funny that yeah that that's where but you're you're right because what other option did she have at that point? Like no, when you you've lost basically the whole roster. You know you've got to you've got to find some new some new way to to think. Essentially, like <laughs> it's it's yeah, it, it's absolutely wild. Like looking back on it, like that period, like because all these things are just you just never could have seen any stuff coming and yeah Tenru returning after everything that had happened was just so unfathomable and but it worked like it did it got the interest back on all Japan not sure what else she could have done that that no. could have could have got got the eyes back on there because literally like just about every top star other than Kawada was gone and had gone to formed this new company that you know the Mizawa Kobashi big showdown the big rematch which Noah built to like that was built on years and years of their work in all Japan and all Japan didn't get that match which might still be the best match some would say of the 21st century like they built to that in Noah yeah <laughs> you know basically yeah. on their history in another promotion yeah, and to be fair to all Japan, Noah didn't do that much revolutionary stuff. No. They did what all Japan would have done. And it's all Japan that ends up being groundbreaking. Like yeah. the first big match they build to once Kawada becomes vice president, which is a job he doesn't really want, and he's kind of trying to get out of the company, and he doesn't want to be like carry the can in case it all goes wrong, I guess. And that's mm. not a bad thing. It's not that. I wouldn't either. Um, <laughs> but Baba, Baba, Matoko Baba understands the situation. So she talks to Kieji Muto, who's 
kind of done with New Japan Pro Wrestling by early 2000. He's had his big run with the championships. He's looking for a new challenge. Kawada doesn't want the job of president. Baba doesn't want wants to hand off the company to somebody she can trust. And it ends up being Kiyeji Muto was Triple Crown Champion, taking the title from Tenru. Yeah. That, that's impressive by itself, but that championship run was fostered by an angle, Badass Translate Trading, which was a faction after Muta left the NWO, he founded his own faction with wrestlers from All Japan, New Japan, Michinoku Pro, and from MMA. It was the first cross-company faction. You know, Bullet Club isn't anything new, as we know. <laughs> mm. But yeah, it was the first cross-company faction with companies that weren't really, that were working together kind of-ish. And Muta takes the title off Tenru in an absolute blinder that fills Budokan Hall. So, hmm, it's amazing that All Japan ended up being the company that did all the revolutionary stuff. Even yeah. though they were supposed to be trying to stay conservative, it's it's yeah, it's fascinating how the hand was kind of forced in that way. Like you say, for it to go from a situation where where Matoko Baba wouldn't budge even slightly on these little changes Mazella wanted to make, that he would end up bringing Tanoa like more focus on the junior heavyweight division more work with outside companies and she wouldn't budge on that but then when her hand was forced in this way they they thought so far outside the box you know <laughs> to make all japan um continue um and keep being relevant so yeah it's it's just it's such a a fascinating i guess iconoclastic moment in in japanese wrestling history really this almost like this one press conference leads to so many different strands that we see have an effect for like the next two decades essentially yeah it's insane absolutely insane but let us wrap up this tv show that we've been watching so the main <laughs> event ends up being Akira Teyu and Toshiaki Kawada, the Holy Demon Army versus Takeko Amare and Yoshihiro Takeyama in 16 minutes and 59 seconds, where these four men proceed to try and knock each other's heads off their shoulders yeah. in any way they can see fit. <laughs> Very much does what it says on the tin in that way, doesn't it, when you've got these four involved? It's just, it's just the, like, Omori lays in this hard shot that like would crush your chest in, and Teo just like barks at him and clotheslines him out of his boots. It's insane. Yeah. It's just so stiff. Where um, Omori lariats Kawada so hard, and it's like that is a bold move <laughs> to, to lariat Kawada <laughs> that hard when you know he's going to kick you back as hard as he does. Um, yeah, just those strokes summed up this this match really. Yeah, it's insane. It just like it it hits so hard. It, it is so stiff, and it's just so it, it's it's painful to watch. And the but the finish is so good because Kawada struggles and gets a sleeper on and ends up going a pinfall from the sleeper. But it's yeah. it's also slightly a bit of a squib because Kawada didn't have the ring presence and rolled into the ropes. So the referee has to break the hold, but he realizes he's had it on long enough, so he just pins him. <laughs> yeah, like... chokes him unconscious and pins him basically. Yeah, this this wasn't the finish you wanted, but it's the finish you got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it was it was quite a strange finish, I suppose. It it, it also felt in a way though, that like just we'll just put you to sleep and then pin you. <laughs> like <laughs> why wouldn't he do that, I suppose? Um but yeah, yeah um, sorry, sorry, go on. No, no, I was I was screaming. <laughs> I was gonna say the match, because yeah, the match as a whole is is like is is a really well told story. On top of it being absolutely brutal, because they bring kind of the Teu shoulder injury injury into this. So there's that idea that he you know he needs to overcome this, and and Takiyama and Amori basically work so well together, and they just they've got one of those one of the two isolated basically at every point throughout the match it's kind of i guess that's classic tag team wrestling if you want to if you want to call it that but yeah anytime <coughs> you know AU tries to get involved to stop them attacking kawada they get rid of him and vice versa um and mm. yeah it's it, it basically is that kind of simple storytelling of the crowd are so into it because they want to see the good guys, um, the angry good guys, <laughs> the holy <laughs> demon good guys, um, overcome, overcome the adversity and get the win over these two, you know, Takiyama and Amori just being bastards, basically, <laughs> for the whole match. Um, so, yeah, it works really effectively in that sense, but obviously it's kind of interesting to look at in the context of what happened you know in the context of the match alone all the story works fantastically like i say but if you look at it from the context of what was about to happen it's quite awkward really that teo is obviously set up as like this big you know he's got to overcome adversity and be like they're going to be the big conquering heroes in the end considering that you know, we well, we see it literally before this match. He's one of the guys in the press conference who is leaving the company, and it causes all these sort sorts of issues because they've just put the tag belts on, you know, Teu and Kawada. Obviously, Kawada sticks around, but they have to vacate the belts again <laughs> because <laughs> because Teu is is off to to be part of the formation of Noah. So. Yeah, again, the ramifications coming out of this match are, are quite interesting. Yeah, and it and it's like Takayama bounces back and forth between All Japan, Noah, and New Japan for the next fifteen years, and then on yeah. to DDT and Wrestle One, and then back to the DDT. Yeah. It's 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 the start of free agency in Japanese wrestling yes. uh, on a much bigger level than we've had before, and. It's kind of where where you get Seiya Sonata in New Japan Pro Wrestling. You why you get Shingo Takagi in New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ishii in New Japan Pro Wrestling. There's all sorts of things that happen because of this. Yeah. Because the example was set. We talked about this before that wrestling in Japan was a cradle to grave occupation for the majority of wrestlers up until the late 1980s. And then all of a sudden, there becomes these options that become available. Mm-hmm. You know, Sonata is a good example. He's Muto's protege. But it was quite clear he was never going to get anywhere being Muto's protege. He had to become his own man. He spent a year in Mexico. Some people thought he'd gone missing <laughs> at one point. <laughs> but comes back with this entirely new persona that is way cooler than anything he's ever done before. And suddenly he looks like a star, and New Japan want him for that. 
you know, and it, it, but he couldn't have done that 20 years ago. He would have been Muto's boy for his entire career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it, it, that's the thing, just shakes up the, because Japanese wrestling was so fixed in its ways. You know, it's stuff we've touched on on previous podcasts of, you were, you know, you worked for one company and, and that was it. And like you, you didn't mix even with wrestlers from, from other companies. You know, it was so kind of closed you didn't off. Mi- you didn't even mix with wrestlers from other factions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it was so regimented in how how it yeah. was. Where I think we spoke about that in the last show where you know, two guys in opposite factions, like absolute veterans. I can't remember who it was you said, but like how it was, um, it was uh, Kawada and uh, Naomichi Marafuji that never go, actually yeah, spoken. Crazy, like the fact that two guys who've been that important to Japanese wrestling had had about two brief conversations in their whole career <laughs> because they, yeah. because that's just the way it was. You didn't associate with each other, and yeah, this completely. You know, again, this kind of one press conference has like ramifications that just shake up the entire industry for for two decades. And yeah, like other companies benefit from it. Like you say, we we might not have seen, you know, the fact we might not have seen Tomohiro Ishii in New Japan if it had not been for this is is a crazy thought when you think now how important he is to that promotion and what a stalwart he is of that promotion now and how you know we we love we love seeing you know particularly like in the g1 he's the mvp pretty much every year like it's that might not have happened had it not been for this no i mean and again the women did it first we have to say that and give us where they do because if JWP and LLPW hadn't been founded in 1990, 1991, would uh, Chigasa Nagayo have found the money to start Gaia in 1995? Would have Asushi need to put the money into his Joshi division in FMW? Probably not. But someone proved it could be done, so it happened. And that's the key thing with Japanese wrestling. Prove it can be done. You know, prove that pro wrestling will sell to a Japanese audience. Ricky Dozan did that. Prove that you can present wrestling in a sports style. Antonio Inoki did that. Mm-hmm. Phil the Tokyo Dome. So Inoki did that. And Baba did that. Is all these first. It's just the first person to think of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the thing. And it, it's like, it can be done. Anything can be done. And that's the thing about Japanese wrestling. That's the thing I always loved about FMW. If you open your mind wide enough, you can achieve anything. And this is the this is the first time a conservative wrestling promotion had opened its mind just a little bit. And look what they did. Both promotions. We should finish this card off. The actual show finishes with Yonakiyama and Manuki Mossman. These days we know him as um, trying to pronounce his name properly because I keep doing this wrong. Is Teokia, uh, who was from Honolulu but was um, a Japanese resident and had been an AJPW veteran for about five or six years, but was finally getting a big push based around his stiff kicks and his uh, charismatic persona. They went up against Kenta Kabashi and Kentaro Shiga for 17 minutes and 14 seconds. Kentaro Shiga was very small. Yes. He's a a skinny (laughs) man. (laughs) In comparison to other three big lads 
this is the thing. For about four years, Kenta Kibashi wrestled Yonakiyama with a with a um, rotation of tag team partners for no apparent reason, as far as I can tell. We've got to do something with Akiyama and Kibashi. Stick him in a tag match. All right then. Yeah, um, it was either they were against <laughs> each other or they were together. <laughs> like yeah, for years and, and years. Like, yeah, for years and years, and it's like because they were the two guys that came up together through the through the through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Of course, Yonakiyama is still going strong in DDT today. John Dinsdale's naming him as I think he said he'd like to name him as wrestler of the year for the effort he's put in some twenty two years after this particular event. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but yeah, Mossman and Shiga and Kabashi, and it, but it's the same story that Kabashi has been telling for years, which is I've got a weaker tag team partner who's physically weaker than than me and my opponents, Mm -hmm. but we're going to try our best and we're going to try our hardest and try to win. And you feel so bad for Shigo when he loses because he's given it his all. He's tried his heart out and he just can't get there because he's just not big enough. And that's a completely relatable story in pro wrestling. And it's just great. And I love this match, but just for simple, pure storytelling. Yeah, no, you, like the, yeah, Shiga's like fire and the way he, when he kind of gets that tag late on in the match and he's sort of clearing house, it's it's great. Like, and the crowd are loving it. And it's obviously comes after they set that up with Akiyama kind of dismissively throwing him down at, at Kobashi's feet early on. Like, very much like, is this the best you could really find as a tag team partner? And then it, it all kind of leads up to that Shiga getting his moment to shine, but coming up short in the end, which is nicely done. Obviously, Kobashi and Akiyama, anytime they interact in this match, is fantastic. Um, Kobashi, like, straight after that moment where, like, Akiyama throws Shiga at his feet and Kobashi tags in, just immediately just slaps the the living daylights out of Akiyama, chops him (laughs) to death, like... Drops him on his head with a suplex because, of course, he does. And yeah, well, it was like there's a reason why they were put together so much, either as opponents or or as a tag team, because they they were gold together. And you know, arguably, again, like with the Noah stuff, their best match together is still to come. In a you know, a few years after this, when they they wrestle each other, 2004, I believe, for for Kobashi's title, which is probably the best match they ever had against each other um but yeah just a really fun tag match again and shout out by the way to that diving kind of diving straight jacket style ddt that shiga does i feel like someone needs to bring that back like that is that was a really cool move i'm surprised no one no one's picked that up um to do in 2020 it looks really dangerous alex yeah Because it looks like you're going to text somebody's head off and break their arms at the same time, Alex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you seen most of the offense in wrestling in 2020? I feel like someone. Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like half the moves in wrestling now are that. So I'm sure I'm sure someone could incorporate it into their move set somewhere. To be honest, um, but yeah, obviously ends with like Shiga getting murdered with kind of a cradle tombstone from Akiyama um and yeah I guess the other interesting aspect is is Mossman right where he is the only 
one of these four guys in the match who ends up sticking around with All Japan. Um, and it's interesting because I think Mizawa wasn't that high on him when he was yeah. there. So it kind of stalled his push. And then he's a guy who maybe actually weirdly benefits <laughs> from the situation where all these guys leave and he maybe um, gets a bit more of a push because of that. Because I think he was backed by other people in the company and once Mizawa had kind of gone, that, that helped him quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he... Uh, you you look at his like uh, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated 500. He he goes slowly up the rankings. He starts yeah. in in ninety in ninety eight he was one hundred fifteen. Ninety nine he was one hundred seventy two. Then you look in two thousand and six he was lank, ranked the eleventh best wrestler in the world by PWI. You know right. it's yeah it's like so that's and the PWI uh, is a good one to gauge things on because. It's kayfabe. It's based on attendance. It's based on match quality, and it's based on everything. I know we give it enough stick every year, but it's really hard to do. But it gives <laughs> you like the common perception of what other people think of like what the mainstream wrestling fan thinks, and they ranked him as the eleventh best wrestler in the world. That's really good. And in two thousand seven, he got to seventh. You know, wow. Tokyo Sports gave him best tag prize in two thousand and eight. So he is a renowned wrestler by the mid-2000s because he has that space to grow and there's not all of this... Deadwood is not fair because the, no, the AJPW roster of 2000 was one of the strongest rosters of mm. pro wrestling ever. But there is room for him to move up. There isn't room for him to move up if the Noah crew stay there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, it's not Deadwood. It's just... It's so stacked as a roster it's hard to see yeah. how he could have broken through when you look at yeah the guys who obviously because straight away you're taking away as we said three of the the four pillars are gone and then you've got all the up-and-coming talent basically is gone as well so, so you know they needed guys like him to step up and fill the void um and yeah, yeah. He, he took will the opportunity you, will you look at that spot in 99 kabashi hasn't quite made it to main event legend status yet and he's already being called the perfect wrestler mm -hmm. and you've got akiyama who's undoubtedly the greatest tag wrestler that ever lived i'd say him and arn anderson are the greatest two tag wrestlers i ever saw mm -hmm. right as as understanding tag wrestling and psychology and how tag wrestling is supposed to work as well as being an absolute surefire hall of fame main event and they can't crack the main event, so what chance do you have? Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's the same as the AJW thing we've talked about so many times with the class of 86 and the class of 87, arguably 10 of the greatest wrestlers who ever lived. How are you supposed to compete? How are you supposed to get past that? How, you, how do you, how do you, <laughs> you know, I think Chelsea said it like, I have to get up in the morning and try to be one of the greatest professional wrestlers who ever lived just to stay on the roster. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm not competing against Minami Toyota. I'm competing against all the wrestlers ever. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, what they, this is what he's going through. And, you know, he still now is considered a legendary finger to all Japan fans and Noah fans. And as guested for both promotions, he was on the Baba Memorial card last uh, two years ago. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's insane that they had this de- this bench depth, really, um, and you'd want to change anything. Why would you want to change anything? Look at all these guys. Mm. You know, that's that, but but that is just the way it works, isn't it? But yeah, that's why. Yeah, it, as we we've said, it just shook everything up so much to where you did see new guys start to thrive in these other companies be, because more more space was created. And then yeah, like Noah goes on to to build its own thing basically with <laughs> with most of the the former old Japan roster, which is yeah, it's was such a crazy time. I think as well, what helped Noah was a keen sense of design. Mm-hmm. The Noah, the Noah logo, the yes. Noah philosophy and presentation was breathtakingly good. AJPW mm-hmm. was founded in the early 1970s, and in 2000, it still looked like it was in the 1970s. Yeah, you know, there were, it was it was a classic iconoclastic logo, but the presentation was still the same as it was 25 years earlier. Noah came in. We've got rock music and heavy metal guitars and they've got this incredible graphic of Noah's Ark with a piece of because they were the the creatures that had left the the flooded land you know it, yeah. it was all this biblical references yeah the, banded together the, to survive made a new beginning in the world yeah that kind of thing yeah it, and they they call their first show departure and like, and it's themes that move on, and they still call like the January tour is called First Voyage, and mm. then the December tour is called Voyage Home, or along those lines. I can't remember exactly under yeah. normal circumstances. Final Destination is a is the December tour. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. It's genius. It works so well. It ties everything together, and you know everything about the branding of that company is so good, and it's revolutionised the way we think about pro wrestling branding as a company and merchandise opportunities and how you put factions together. It's just everything we see has been so good with Noah um, and they've rebranded now, but that first branding they had was good for 20 years. They didn't have to keep changing it. Yeah, It was perfect. I think it was probably, I mean, I've, I've kind of like the new Noah logos and stuff, I've kind of come around to it because they've, they've redone everything and they redid the right direction of the company and it makes much more sense now. <laughs> but I was mm-hmm. kind of like... Mm-hmm. Can't get rid of the green map when it, was yeah, yeah. when it first happened, but it works for me now. I can understand why it works as well. Oh yeah, but it was like that—the green map and stuff was like you say it was so iconic. And I get, you know, there was that Mazawa influence, obviously, in the green and and everything there. But it's that was again like it was something different from what everyone else was doing, and it, it made them stand out even in terms of that you know the way the ring was presented the way the logo was these like you say the concepts around the names of the events and things like that it was it was like it was a fresh thing that hadn't been seen in japanese wrestling before really which which did make it stand out yeah on top of obviously the fact that there were a lot of legends that went there to form the company as well which <laughs> when you've got oh, Mizawa, yeah. like setting up the company that's quite a good start to be honest it is uh, they did suffer we can't be all positive obviously they did suffer the same issues that every other wrestling promotion in japan suffered was the fact that they did get themselves involved with the yakuza which would mm. bite them in 2012 but it was 
and to be honest with you, they got off lightly compared to other companies. And it, I can be blunt, you essentially couldn't run a wrestling company without the accuser in the 90s. That's the way it was. Yeah. Unless you were Baba or Noki, you'd already made your money if you were starting to do I mean, always looking at um, BJW, um, Strieger was looking at BJW's show from early 2000, I think it was, or 99. It was one of the first Battle Station shows on Samurai TV, um, much like the Osaka Pro that we looked at with Daryl last week. And it was a show that put BJW in the hole for seven years. Mm. They, they didn't pay back off the production costs of one show for seven years. It took them seven years to pay off the costs of one show. And you'd Crazy. like, how? And then you wonder why wrestling companies had to get involved, like, the organized crime. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because, because banks wouldn't give them loans because banks were too conservative. And that's, we can't put money into a wrestling company. Good God, no. Um, but yeah, that's there is reasons why things happen. That that's another thing that always amazes me about wrestling, and it's not just Japanese wrestling. It's like why it's all environmental stuff, and you don't realize it until you until you think about it. Why was British wrestling so genteel? Because British rings were really really stiff. Yeah. <laughs> why do luchadors dive to the outside? Because their fans appreciate diving, and their strings are really really stiff, so they don't want to land on the inside. It's far safer to land. It's actually safer to land on the concrete on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these things are environmental, and you don't realize that until a little way down the line when you figured things out. And a lot of the stuff that happens with Japanese pro wrestling is due to the fact that it doesn't have a Western-style banking system. Their banking yeah. system is different and much, much more conservative. It's one of the reasons why they're one of the richest companies on Earth and can ride out major recessions much better than other companies countries can. But it does mean small businesses have a hard time getting a foothold because it's not designed for that. It's designed for big corporate industry to get a foothold. Mm. So there you are. It's, yeah. it's interesting then. I think we kind of mentioned this on the last show, but how that all kind of ties into, you know, Mizawa's story and how long he ends up having to wrestle at the top of the card because he... You know, he wanted to push the younger talent and he did push the younger talent, but it didn't necessarily draw the numbers they needed to make the money where where maybe in a different environmental circumstance, that's less it's a it's less of an issue when they're not drawing the same money. They can kind of ride that out. But as it was, Mazawa kept having to work at the top of the card and you know, it kind of leads to his tragic death you could argue the fact they was having to have these yeah horribly kind of brutal matches main event matches again and again at the age he was because they kept trying to create new stars they wouldn't you know they wouldn't draw what they needed kobashi was injured there were all these kind of issues around it as noah got deeper and deeper into its existence that yeah that yeah it, it's kind of i guess grimly fascinating how that all kind of plays out because of maybe external forces on top of you know what they're doing within the company i think there's i think you you have a nine nine year purple patch when noah are the best thing in wrestling year yeah, in year 100%, out yeah and and then all of a sudden they're not drawing and 
Yamasawa's having to stay longer and, and he wants to retire and he kind of really wanted to retire in the mid 2000s and couldn't. And yeah, well, he, he very much him losing the title to Kabashi was very much that was going to be the moment, right? And he was going to start yeah. scaling it back from that point on. And it would have worked, you know, Kobashi like really ran with that as we know, but then Kobashi had his own issues, you know, with injuries and things like that to where, you know, his career was never really the same after he, you know, kind of dropped that bell. And then after sort of 2005, 2006, you know, he never kind of was able to reach those heights again because of all the injuries. And yeah, that all feeds back into that. Yeah, and and it's it's the that's the that's the trouble with this style, yeah. you know. It is it's very much an attrition style on wrestlers, especially in the main event. And you know, it's uh, how can I put it? I mean, I well, I I would talk with Ben Spindler when we first started the podcast about Mike Foley and. Mm. Uh, he, you know, Ben was talking about how, how all those grim injuries he did in Japan, and I said, "Well, I'm not convinced that's true because the big injuries Mick had in Japan were all cuts and bruises and burns. Mm-hmm. The damage he did to himself was all happened in WCW, where they're wrestling that aggressive, attrition-based style. You got Ron Simmons throwing you around three nights a week. You're going to know about it yeah. very quickly, and that's the kind of wrestling they were doing in Noah." You see it in gifts now from 15 years ago when Masawa like German suplexes off the apron to the floor mm-hmm. and Kabashi lands on his neck and slides for three yards on the mat. And it's like that did not do Kabashi's neck good. And I've seen the x-rays of Kabashi's neck and it yeah. didn't do him any good. You know, no. so God knows what, what Masawa, what it was doing to Masawa, who was already a heavy smoker and already under a lot of stress and had all of these health issues as well as trying to run the third biggest wrestling company in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, it's asking for trouble in many in many cases, and we've seen it before in pro wrestling. And you know, I I guess you could argue Baba was in a very similar streak. He didn't want to talk about his health issues in public because of the issues he was going through. And it's it's a case of history repeating itself. They've learned one lesson, but have they learned all of the lessons? Yeah, exactly. Which is something we'll talk about in Beginner's Guide as we look at more cars from Noah. But there is a, a purple patch of absolutely purely brilliant wrestling for about nine years. And that's something oh, you have to yeah. kind of like get, gauge you get is yourself as a wrestling fan is there is a price to be paid for the wrestling that you watch. And sometimes that price is incredibly heavy. And mm. you should think about that about you before you start talking about, oh, I want to see this match or that match. Think about what will happen to those wrestlers and if you want them to have long careers and be able to, you know, have a good life after they finish wrestling. Because I think about that, the older I get and the stiffer it is for me to go up in the morning, I think about that a lot more than I used to. And I don't mean to depressing. People make their own choices and they're grown-ups and if that's the life they've chosen to lead, it's up to them. But also be aware that there is a price to be paid for the matches that you see. Sorry to be grim, but... I think it's a, a warning that needs to be said every once in a while. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And with yeah, we with Noah in particular, and and all Japan, like it all. Yeah, we we saw it quite tragically with Mizawa. So yeah, absolutely. Sorry to end on a downer. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in, in, when, um, we, when we look at the Noah card, like whatever it is, and kind of, like we say, this is almost like a, a three-part mini-series, I guess. So we'll we'll have to look at like a, a Noah show itself, an early one, if we can find it. We can kind of delve into that yeah. stuff more. Um, but yeah, there was there's no doubt like there was that period, and particularly with Mizawa into Kobashi, that kind of period was they were the best, the most consistent yeah. promotion on the planet at that time. There wasn't they were just absolute everything they touched turned to gold at that time. <laughs> well, there's plenty of AJPW about, so maybe we should A B contrast, pick an AJPW show, pick a pick a Noah show from the same year. And see how they've developed after the schism, because I think that's probably the best way of like closing the story out. To be fair to both companies. Yes, no, I think that sounds like a a very good shout. Indeed. So we'll call it for the Troopany show today. My name is James Troopany. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. Where can we find you on your internet? On the old internet, I'm at AlexWatt187 on Twitter. Also at Did It Cross on twitter for my football podcast that me and my wife do you can hear stories about our cat as well who is called noah funnily enough <laughs> uh, I, 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 I did re- i did i did say to rebecca yesterday on twitter would be you were doing this podcast and and that it was about the birth of noah but not yeah. your cat I hadn't, I hadn't like made the connection at all until I saw. Him. <laughs> oh yeah, that's quite weird, isn't it? But yeah, he's, um, yeah, he. That's not who he's named after. Um, so, <laughs> although, although maybe, maybe, maybe I should get him some kind of Noah pro wrestling related merchandise for Christmas or something to wear. <laughs> 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 Yes, um, you can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon where you keep the Troopany Show free forever for everyone. We'll be back next week. I'm not sure what we're looking at. We should be looking at our year-end show um, and our year-end awards, which we'll be talking to. The boys over at the Wrestling Rewind have got their year-end awards to deal with. They're dealing with North America because Dave doesn't watch wrestling and Dara doesn't watch Japanese wrestling. So getting Dave to watch Japanese wrestling would be a real trip. I might do that one day. <laughs> Darren gets all the weird stuff on, on the Troopany show to do, and he's very happy with that. I, I sent him a mix of battle arts and Osaka Pro last week. He was dead shocked. <laughs> oh, it's lads. Yes. So, yeah, he was very happy. Um, so, yeah, um, we'll be back next week. And then after that, it's Christmas week, and I guess we will do our annual preview of Wrestle Kingdom, which I'm really annoyed about because the 4th and 5th are on school days this year, and that's not right. Absolutely gutted that we have to go back on the 4th. I didn't realise until some of the... <laughs> yeah, I think I think I yeah I go back to work on the fourth as well. That's that's annoying. It's it is crazy, by the way, that the Wrestle Kingdom is is coming around already. Like it's that just sums up like what twenty twenty has been. That we're already now looking ahead to Wrestle Kingdom again. Yeah, uh, and we know now. For those of you who are into those kind of things, you'd like to know the main event will be Tetsuya Noto versus Kota Ibushi on the 4th, and the winner of that will face Jay White on the 5th. 
and the mm. IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship will be uh, the winner of ELP, El Fantasmo versus Hiromu Takahashi on the fourth versus the IWGP Heavyweight Champion Taiji Ishimori on the fifth. And the World Tag League winners were G.O.D. He will take on Dangerous Techers for the IWGP World Tag Team Championships. And I'm guessing it will be Jeff Cobb versus Shingo Takagi for the Never Openweight Championships. So Pretty that's a card. good card on paper, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty good yeah. to start. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a kickoff. No US Championship, apparently, because... Um, um, AEW's boss, Tony Khan, that's the fella. Tony Khan said that John Moxley's not off to Wrestle Kingdom this year. He can't. So, be yeah, no still, US title match. Still unclear on that because he said that before the title match. And I'm still unclear on whether that's true or whether he was trying to kind of, you know, throw some doubt over what the result of that match would be. Um, because in theory, Moxley could have isolated and be ready to go, but I've not really heard anything about it. It's uh, From what I understand is New Japan talent are going out 14 days ahead of being paid to sit in a hotel for two weeks. Yes. So, so, you'd, so assume Mo- you'd, ass- that you'd assume we yeah. would have yeah, we would have heard about it somewhere in the news. So unless they're keeping it very quiet, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll see, or maybe we get a surprise from Moxley. I don't know. Yeah, um, wanted to keep an eye on that because, in theory, he could do it. You know, he, yeah. he obviously, you know, spoiler alert if anyone's not caught up, he obviously dropped the, the AEW title with enough time to isolate and work New Japan. But who knows? Who knows whether that's happened? <laughs> that is a possibility. He also has a pregnant wife at home and may not want to go. There is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you know, there's there's all sorts of things you could you could put out there that, that are possibly problematic. Yeah, he went to that GCW show where about 17 people caught COVID. So, yeah, <laughs> he's his own guy, Moxley. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to predict Anything what you might happen. do. So, <laughs> yes. um, but you know, I'm still angry at the injustice that uh, Torriano hasn't had his US title shot yet because he beat him in the G1 last year. That's true, yeah. That's another thing to to blame COVID for there, is Yano not getting <laughs> his title shot. Also, if I could also find someone to do it with, Triple Mania was last night. That would be interesting to review, because um, Two Belts Omega is still the AAA World's Heavyweight Champion. If you haven't seen it yet, sorry to spoil it for you, but there was no way he was losing that belt. <laughs> <laughs> Run him over with a cutter and he'd still win. So, yeah. <laughs> he is the belt collector now, so... Yes. Uh, if you wish to go find that, it's on YouTube and on Facebook, free of charge from AAA, though it's not got English commentary. Though apparently, <laughs> apparently there is uh, occasional bouts of English from the Spanish announce team as they just go... Um, someone was pointed out this morning, oh, it's just things like, oh, Irish whip and fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which like sounds, said, of course, par for the course of the AAA commentary. Like I said with um, on the last show we did with the Japanese commentary, it's beautiful when you just get those moments of, of English that creep into the foreign commentary, and it is usually swearing. It's either calling moves or swearing, inevitably, that kind of creeps in. Gotch-style piledriver in that Yonakiyama match. I picked my ears up for that when I heard that. Ah, Gotch-style <laughs> piledriver. 
Anyway, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. Right, thank you for listening to the Troopany Show today. We will speak to you soon. Bye.